Hey, everybody, it's Tommy Canale, and welcome to Before the Lights Podcast, the show on how they made their mark. He was a captain with the Oklahoma City Fire Department, a trained hazmat expert, EMT, father, and husband. He was portrayed in the iconic photo that won a Pulitzer Prize holding the body of infant Bailey Allman after the Oklahoma Federal Building bombing in 1995. He's the co-founder of Trauma Behind the Badge and has dedicated his life and travels to first responders on the brutal realities of a life spent responding to citizens. There are over 1 million firefighters in our nation and 70% of them are volunteers. We're honored to have on the show, Chris Fields. Chris, welcome to Before the Lights. Hey, thank you, Tommy. Honored, honored to be here. This is going to be a different show for my listeners. I'm, like I said, honored to have you on, and I'm hoping that we can uh, open some eyes, open some hearts, and get some people to look a different way than they they may be at this time. But let's start here. No, I was just going to say, I, yeah, I love it. I was, when you first reached out and I was reading all your, uh, you know, previous shows and listened to a few, I was going, maybe he's got me confused with some Chris Fields that was a great athlete somewhere <laughs> or something or, you know, somewhere along that lines. But then uh, I listened to, you know, UJ Dobbins, a good friend of mine. And I thought, okay, this will work. <laughs> yes, definitely going, I mean, going to work. I think you and I both grew up as you describe it as the suck it up era where, you know, if you were playing sports or you got hurt, it was, you know, you're not hurt, get up, everything is fine. And, and that was the way it was. And I should kind of change. It was kind of expected. That's the way it was supposed to be. I, I, I agree. I, that's just, a. I never knew anything different. You know, that's just the way I grew up, you know, all the way through high school playing, playing sports. And, uh, that was just the mentality, you know, it was, uh, you know, you can be a little hurt. Yeah. But you better find a way to get back out there. Somebody's going to take your spot or something, you know, the coach is going to, or whoever's going to lose confidence in you. And, uh, you know, same thing. And, and I know we'll transition to it here in a minute, but that's, that's just the way I was brought up in the fire service too. Cause that's the way the, the guys that raised me in the fire department's the way they were raised in the fire service. I remember there was two things. If you're hurt, you can still play. If you're injured, you can't play. <laughs> Very good. I used to have a coach that tell me like, you know, come off, especially basketball. That was my thing. And I played a bunch and, you know, hurt ankle and hit his first thing. He'd say, it's too far from your heart to kill you. So you need to, you know, get on back out there. So that's, that's what we did. July 12th, 1985, you started your career as a fighter fighter. What were your first days like? And what do you recall about the first time you were called out? Golly, it was, uh, I think I was one of the so fortunate ones too. I, I tested my first time for Oklahoma city back when there was like, it was a 25 man rookie school and there was like two or 3000 applicants. And, uh, I was kind of their second choice, I guess I should say. I got in. I was 26th on the list, and a, a guy failed his final physical. And so that moved me up to 25th and set in motion, man, one of the best best careers I ever had. I, I do it all over again. Um, but I, I just remember uh, I had an uncle that was in the fire service, and I grew up my best friend growing up. His dad was uh, – uh, at the church I grew up at, my best friend, his dad was the Oklahoma City Fire Department chaplain. So I kind of grew up around the environment. A lot of the firefighters went to our church. So I kind of grew up around that environment and with those those people. But um, yeah, I remember my first, my very first shift, um, we're supposed to get there at 
shift changes at 7 a.m. Well, new boy, rookie, what you want to call, they're telling you, you don't get there at seven, you get there at six. Well, boy, I was raised through sports and everything. My mentality, I was there at 530, waiting at the doors and the captain from the other shift saw me out in the parking lot. He was up drinking coffee already. And uh, he waved me in and they got a call. So I went with the other shift on a cardiac full arrest at 545 or so at 6, 6 a.m., I'm sitting there putting my hands on a person that's deceased, you know, and I was 21 years old and I'd never been around that kind of stuff, you know, and I just thought first I kind of thought, you know, what have I gotten into? <laughs> uh, you know, but we did CPR, we resuscitated the person. Uh, and so then I, I kind of just knew right then I said, okay, I've made the right choice. Um, went back to the station, my shift other crew was waiting on me, uh, got in with them and by 9 a.m. that morning, I'd already made my first, you know, what we call a working house fire. Actually, you know, firing smoke present and pulling hose lines. And so it was just uh, and uh, that's when all the, the hazing and the harassment started, too. So I knew I was going to love this job. <laughs> first responders, military. It's a family and it's a team effort. And if you could speak to my listeners about what that means to you. Oh, man, it's just the. Uh, it's as much as I love to watch individual sports, you know, your golf and that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Uh, there's just something about that team effort. And uh, again, it relates to the sports world and to the, you know, the military and the first responder world. It's just, it's just being able to count on those people and more importantly, if they can count on you, you know, and it's just that knowing that somebody has your back and, and being thought of, and you know, that they're comfortable with you having their back. And that's just kind of the way the fire service fire service is. It's a, it is totally and completely um, a, a team effort, and not necessarily just the three or four guys you're with on your on your rig either. It's a team effort as far as if we're on this side of the structure or this side working a car wreck, we know the other guys are doing what they're supposed to be doing. It makes it easier for us to do our job and vice versa. So yeah, it's just a. Um, it's just a it's just a huge part of that uh, of that culture. Listeners, and the reason I wanted Chris to talk about that is now we're going to get into the bombing at the federal building. And this is a, a, a family team effort and where Chris gets kind of singled out here on Wednesday at 9.01 a.m. on April 19th, 1995. A truck bomb was detonated at the federal building in Oklahoma City that killed 168 people and injured 680 others. When the bomb went off, Chris, did you hear it, feel it? What did you think had happened? Um, both. Heard it, felt it. Um, the fire station I was at was uh, one block east and 15, 15 or 14 blocks north of the Murrah building. And, uh, yeah, we, we felt it. Uh, the, the station shook. The windows rattled. Um, at first, we thought maybe uh, a train had derailed. Right across the street from our fire station was a uh, board and ice cream plant, and uh, they had a train yard. And uh, so we thought a train seriously had derailed. And so we went out the east door of the station and looked and didn't see anything. We turned our attention back south towards downtown and saw this huge plume of, of black smoke. Uh, and at that time, no idea. We we did what we knew we were close enough. We were going to be dispatched. So we self-dispatched what we call. We didn't wait for the tone or the alarm. 
We jumped on. We had three rigs at my station that day, the engine, a rescue ladder, and a hazmat unit. And I was assigned to the hazard materials unit that day. We rotated rigs, so it was just my my turn on the hazmat. And I thank you for the word that I paid you to use expert when you said hazardous material expert. <laughs> and I am far from an expert. But, uh, anyway, we uh, and, and on the way down there, you know, that's uh, everything. Talking to my driver and we're going over any scenario it could possibly be to be that huge. And we were thinking maybe, a, you know, that natural gas line um, had exploded, you know, or somebody ignited it. There was, uh, there was some construction going on across the street from the Murrah building in downtown that we knew about. So, I mean, we were saying like a welder's, it was a steel frame building. We were thinking a welder's torch, you know, and anything, but uh, to never, never thought of a, a intentional, you know, uh, bomb. What did you see upon arrival? The, uh, the, one of the first things we saw, and it's, it's as vivid today as it was 27 years ago, we spotted the rig about a block east of the, of the Murrah building. And, um, started to walk to the site, getting assignments from the incident commander. And as we were, there was just a slight hill, you know, up the street. And uh, as we were walking up that, that street, fifth street, um, it's all you could see was these hordes of people. I uh, remember when we were younger, the, like the blob movie where it shows oh, you yeah. running out of the theater, yep. you know, and, or whatever it was, that's what it looked like. It was just all these hordes of people coming at you. And, uh, you know, they're, they're hollering, screaming stuff. You can't understand them. And um, so the first, we, we had another little assignment before we got to the building. We had to do some triage at a, um, a YMCA building that was Caddy Corner. And then we got an assignment to come down to the building and do some stuff. And the first, I remember seeing the building and and looking, I mean, there were still, we're, we're, we're three, five, six minutes into the incident now, seven, maybe 10 minutes. And there's still debris and stuff floating down. And I remember walking, you're not even touching the pavement. You're walking on glass and you know concrete and you're not even really on the pavement. And uh, seeing that building, and it's not to take away from 168 deaths, but if you'd have been there and looked up and saw that building and thought, we're only going to have 168 people die in this incident, I would have, you know, there's no way. I was... I think in my mind, we were already, you know, just thinking, you know, three, five, six hundred people uh, that were going to be you know, perished in this building. So it was, you know, a 30 foot crater in front of the building, uh, cars on, on fire across the street. Um, so just one of them things to where um, all the cliche statements, you know, you it's things you see in another country uh, It's something that you are. We train for every scenario possible. Uh, we train for the after effects of the scenario, like, you know, moving heavy debris and all, but to stand there and see um, that building, everything 15 feet in front of you was, uh, was something you can't be prepared for. Being you guys self-dispatched and you didn't know what was going on. When did you first learn that it was a bomb? <laughs> That's uh, I think the first indication that we got that it was actually a bomb was probably an hour into the incident. We're just working. I mean, we're, we're got, you know, we're helping uh, evacuate people. We're doing triage. We're trying to rescue people and they evacuated. They told us to evacuate the building and over the radio, I remember them saying, you know, we had to evacuate because they believed they had found another explosive device. We were like 
another explosive device. We didn't know there was an explosive device to begin with. And I think that's when uh, we, uh, some first responders had to be forcefully removed because they were, you know, like talking to victims that were trapped in the rubble and some of them were holding hands with them, reaching through the rubble and we were told to evacuate. So, you know, some good friends of mine, you know, had to be, uh, had to be forcefully removed. And I think once we got out there and everybody was kind of, um, it came at a good time. It gave us a chance to regroup. I mean, everything was just so chaotic. It was radio transmissions where everybody trying to talk over everybody that was really nothing set up as far as organization, you know? So I think when that happened, it gave us a chance to uh, reset, set up and organize what we call uh, incident command system. And I think that's when the word started to spread that it was a, that a uh, intentional, the building had been intentionally bombed and, you know, it was probably what late that night or the next day before we found out it was one of, you know, an American citizen that did it. Of course, back then, Everybody's first thought was, you know, some kind of Middle Eastern involvement and, and all that kind of stuff. So uh, you can imagine what was going on and uh, our anger and our, you know, feelings towards that at the time. Was there a possibility then of the building collapsing? I think there was. It, uh, I think there were some. That's why, you know, and it's what's amazing was the uh, the urban search and rescue teams, USAR teams from around the country that responded so quickly. Uh, I can't remember if Las Vegas, that area, I think they sent one. I know Phoenix did California, New York city. I mean, by the end of the day, they're on, they're on scene and we have structural, you know, engineers uh, that are there. They're part of these teams. So there were situations where uh, if we found a, a victim uh, fatality uh, deceased or, or still alive, there, it might be a situation where we had to do some extra you know, what they call shoring or cribbing to stabilize the building uh, before we could proceed any further or make entry or, you know, I know at one time they, back then, 95, I'm talking about high tech, but it was, uh, they had a, like a a laser beam on the building and they could tell if that building moved, whatever your smallest increment Mm -hmm. (laughs) measurement is, they could tell if it moved and if it did, they would evacuate us and, stabilize, do what they had to do to stabilize that building. Um, so, you know, to me, enough can't be said about those uh, urban search and rescue teams that came in from around the country with all their expertise. And, and we were new to the game as far as that, that type of operation. How did you come across Bailey, who had just turned one the day before, and you had a son at home at the time who was two? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it was probably before the initial I talked about when they evacuated us. It was before that we were going to the uh, south side of the building for an assignment we had got from the incident commander. And I mean, out of nowhere, I mean, I didn't there wasn't like a doorway. It wasn't like he came around the corner. I saw him coming. Boom. He was just there. And it was a police officer named John Avery. Um. It's kind of funny. I used to tell people I didn't know he was a police officer because he wasn't in his uniform. He was in civilian clothes. But there's a picture of him handing me Bailey also. And he's got on a Oklahoma City Police Department hat. He's got a T-shirt on. that says Oklahoma Police. And he's got his gun strapped to his side. But I, I just know that was even in my focus, I guess. But uh, he said he had a critical infant. And 1995 police weren't. I don't know if they are today, but back then they weren't really trained in first aid like firefighters were. And so he was just looking, he was just looking for some help. 
And he said, I have a critical infant. And I said, I just said, here, I'll take her and reached out my arms and he gave me Bailey. And the um, first thing I did was, you know, check her for any signs of life, which she didn't have. And I had to clear out a bunch of her mouth and throat was full of concrete dust. And she had a slight open skull fracture and uh, things like that. But there were, but there were no signs of life. And I happened to look across the street and there was a uh, ambulance parked across the street made my way over there. And man, I said the same thing. I looked at the paramedic. Uh, I was just, I was an EMT, but I looked at the paramedic and said, I have a critical infant. And, uh, the am, I remember the ambulance being full of, uh, there was three people in the ambulance, one on the cot, one in the floor, one up on a bench seat. And then they had three or four uh, patients laying around on backboards. And, um, I know we'll get into it, but not seeing the photo until, uh, golly, not until the next day. Um, found out about it at 11 o'clock that night, but not seeing it till the next day. I can remember exactly what I'm doing. A lot of people don't know the photo was actually taken from way far back. So in the original photo, I can see the paramedic and I'm standing there looking down at Bailey. And what he was doing was he said, let me get a blanket. We're not going to put that baby on the ground. And he was getting, he was having one of his attendants get a, a blanket out of the ambulance. And I remember just looking down at her thinking, God, you know, somebody's world, some family's world is getting ready to be turned upside down. And when I look back on it, thinking that when I was thinking that having that feeling, I was thinking I had no idea that 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 emotion, that feeling from other first responders was going to be be replayed 167 more times that day, you know, of other responders uh, taking people out. And so it was just a um, and it was just one of those deals where. Once, once the paramedic took Bailey from me, I, I went and caught up with my, the rest of my crew and we were there till we finally got released, go back to station about 11 or 1130 that evening. And we're going to get more into your life after that photo mm-hmm. to you. What does that photo represent? Is it a blessing? Is it a curse? Is it both? It is, it is by far the, the most truest definition is it's both. It's uh, I've I've cussed it and I've called it both. And uh, but today I can't look at it anything but a blessing just because of the uh, the platform it's given me uh, like to do this right here or to travel and get to speak. And um, Aaron Bailey's mom is is on board with it. You know, she's to her. It gives her that feeling that Bailey didn't die in vain, that because I got the platform I got from that photo and from that day that. Um, it's being used to save lives, hopefully, you know, and I feel like it is, but, uh, I struggled with it a lot early. And, uh, one of my mentors, chief John Hanson, he just said, Hey, that, that photo isn't about Chris Fields. It's about all the first responders. That's who I represented, whether it was fire, police, ambulance workers, dispatch, he said, and Bailey, uh, whether it's child, adult, when she represented all the innocence that was lost that day. So that's just kind of the way I had to, wrap my mind around it. And, uh, that's just kind of the approach I've taken when I do interviews about it or, or whatever. And, uh, and like I said, we'll get into the, the curse part of it, but the, uh, the, I say the blessing side of it is, uh, the, the, the platform it's given me to, if it wasn't, and I always make a point when I do a presentation to talk about that day for a few minutes and honor Bailey and the victims from that day, because if it wasn't for that day, I'd just be, 
I'd be another first responder that, you know, jacked his life up and then, and almost lost it. But because of that, I have this platform that I get to use. And so I'm thankful for that. As you mentioned, the photo did have an, an impact on your mental health and you were dealing with demons from accumulation of decades of witnessing human suffering along with the guilt of being the last person to hold baby Bailey. You've mentioned that you've dealt with PTSD and did it for you, Chris, really start looking back as a child at age 10 when you had a terrible incident happen to you? Um, yeah, it, 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 it did. It was, uh, and I, you know, and I discovered that down the road. Uh, it was, it was, you know, way down the road. And I can remember that. I think the reason I, I always talk about the bombing because I get my platform from it, but I don't dwell on it because I don't want people to think that or especially first responders or, or anybody really that, um, that my PTSD or anybody else's can come from, it, it has to be one significant incident, it, it, you know, national media uh, incident or natural disaster. It doesn't, it's the accumulation of everyday calls that we make in a career. Um, just like people that aren't first responders have trauma they deal with, you know, sometimes it's that one significant thing that mm-hmm. kind of tips your, fills your bucket, you know, and everything spills out. That's kind of where I got, but it was like, uh, man, it was 1995. It was probably five or six years that I kind of kept all this stuff, even the stuff from that day kind of just suppressed and, and went on about my job because we got back to talking about the suck it up, you know, mm-hmm. stuff. And I didn't want people that had put me in that position, leadership, to think I couldn't handle my job. And I didn't want to think of the people that were following my leadership to think I couldn't handle my job. So it was just a deal to where I was two different people. I was happy-go-lucky, funny guy, quick-witted, cut you quick with a, with a remark, Chris Fields at the fire station. But I was a different person when I came home. And uh, um, my wife saw it, but she didn't know how to. You know, we didn't talk about the job, so she didn't know how to, and it's not her, she didn't know how to approach or talk to me about it. But I remember one day in specifically as the day when everything kind of, and, and through all this, we're having these little, oh, what I consider normal marital, you know, uh, I had disagreements, I guess you would say arguments, whatever you want to call them, that I just, but they had, they had become more frequent. I was a little more isolated, having these little mini bouts of depression. But I remember a day we were putting a pool in our backyard and I was helping the guys bust out my part of my patio, bust out the concrete. And it started to rain a little bit, just kind of sprinkle. And a lot of people don't know it rained the night of the Oklahoma City bombing. And so I caught the smell of wet concrete dust. And that was my trigger, which I didn't know what a trigger (laughs) was then. or I didn't know what to call it. Um, And it didn't like take me to my knees or I didn't freak out. It was just in my mind, I was going, God, it smells just like being inside the building that night. Kind of damp and that wet concrete smell. But I can pinpoint that as the day when everything uh, intensified a little more as far as the the bouts of depression or the isolation or the, you know, quick to argue and uh, just things like that. And again, I'm doing such a fine, fine job of hiding it at work. Um, and at home, I'm not. And again, you like to say my, and if you're not, and I, I've learned a lot about communication. And so I know if you're not relaying, I mean, any, just a simple statement to my wife probably would have helped. 
But when I'm not saying anything, now she thinks it's her, you know, and things are just the snowballs, you know, starting to roll. And it just got to a point to where she said, you need to get help or get out. (laughs) PTSD. And I've read and heard you do it on another show where you call it PTSI for injury instead Mm -hmm. of disorder. How have you learned to, now that you've identified that you had a trigger and you've come back from what we're going to get to, how do you now handle triggers? I think it's better that I, I now I, I recognize what it is. And for me, I, I play the uh, look where I'm at now thing, you know, compared to where I was. And sometimes it's just as simple as uh, 30 minutes of just, man, just nothing back here in my office, just vegging out, just sitting here, you know, sometimes in the dark, just, you know, or sometimes it is, uh, you know, tell my wife, Hey, I need, thir- I need 30, 45 minutes just to veg out, you know, and, and be cool with it. And, but what it keeps me from doing is reach into those other things that I used to, uh, used to, if I would, and I, and I still have days. That's why I try to tell people it's not, not all of a sudden you go to treatment or you go to, you know, a facility, you get treatment or whatever and everything, you never struggle, never have any bad days again. Um, I would say this, I don't even, I shouldn't use that term bad days. I got a friend, that's his deal. No bad days. Some days are worse than others, but no bad days. And uh, so I've just learned not to, you know, I don't reach for the the alcohol or the prescription drugs that I was taking to help cope with those anymore. I'm just in a place now to where I can look back and say, it doesn't define me. It's part of me, it's part of my story, but it doesn't define who I am anymore. So I'm able to, uh, like I say, sometimes it takes, you know, 30, 40 minutes or sometimes there are days where I'm just kind of, but I, I know that that too shall pass. And, uh, so I just, uh, just found a different way to focus my focus, my harness that, that those feelings. So you go from this isolation, which spirals and you mm-hmm. leave your family, you're dealing with depression, had some suicide thoughts. You're separated from your wife for 15 months. How long Chris, did you struggle then before you finally reached out for help? Um, well, I mean, if you, if you really, if you took it, the, the, the 17 months we were, we were, uh, separated. I said 15 months too. She reminded me of a saint. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, she's a saint. Um, so, you know, between that and, and the three or four years building up to that, you know, yeah, you're looking at, you know, five or six years, seven years, you know, and, um, probably more than that really, uh, with everything. But it was just came to a point where, like you said, I had the uh, uh, suicidal ideation, you know, and and actually, you know, tried to I got to a point to where I had done so much damage emotionally uh, to my family and friends that I really thought I thought, you know what, if I if I'm not here. Everybody can just kind of reset and, you know, life after Chris, you know, and uh it was just one of those deals to where like I said, and I did such a, and still uh, Tommy at this point, I'm still doing such a good job of, I mean, there's probably people in the, well, I know there is, there's people in the fire service, unless they were good friends, but there's a lot of people in fire service never knew uh, me and my wife were even separated. That's how good a job I did at going to work and being, but that's, that's something I've learned to where I made that choice to, you know, I was more worried about my legacy with, my occupation and Oklahoma state fire farms. And I was with my own, 
family and my own friends. And uh, that's something I always preach, you know, hey, you got to, I mean, be the best employee and do what you need to do. But, you know, when Chris Fields retired on March 1st in 2017, I tell everybody it was a great day, good party. Everybody showed up on March 2nd. They promoted somebody and put him in my seat and the Oklahoma City Fire Department hadn't missed a beat. And I tell that to anybody I talk to, coaches, first responders, it doesn't matter how great you think you are. There's been, I've, I've never seen any fire services or a major corporation or anything shut down because one employee retired, you know, or, or left. But uh, it just came to a point to where I, I got to that feeling that everybody would be better off and could reset. So I drank quite a bit and took some of the, uh, the pills I was taking the anxiety pills and thought, you know what, if I don't wake up, that's a good, everybody can reset and start over. And I did. And I called my, when I, when I kind of, the next morning, I just kind of thought, okay, there's gotta be, there is more to my life than this existence right here. Um, you know, my apartment wasn't much bigger than this bedroom I used for an office, you know, and, uh, and I thought there's got to be a purpose to my life. And, and th- you know, I'm blessed to get to do what I do now. But to me, I wasn't I had no envision of this, what I get to do now. My to me, when I said there's got I've got to have a purpose that was to be a better father, husband and a friend. That's all I was looking for to find a way to get back to that Chris Fields. And uh, I always get emotional talking about it. But I called my wife and said, I'm done. I am ready to come home and here's a woman i had uh you know had a, a extramarital affair uh treated her like you know emotionally just had bombarded her and uh she said well come on and uh that's kind of for me when i knew i thought everything was going to be i thought if god had given her enough grace to forgive me and say that that i knew everything would be okay and uh what an easy road uh it was one I wouldn't recommend. Uh, that's why I try to get out there and spread the word and tell people that are first responders. That's what I mainly get to talk to that. You don't have to wait until the wheels fall off. There's so many people and so many steps you can take along the way to that. You don't have to wait until the, uh, until the wheels fall off. And that's what I did. And it doesn't always mean treatment. It always doesn't mean you're going to be diagnosed with anything, but if it gives you a, just talking to somebody, if that's an avenue you need, I encourage everybody that, uh, like I say, that's the main kind of root of my message is uh, you just don't have to wait until the wheels fall off and get to the point where I did to, uh, you know, and like I say, things are a struggle and it's still, every day is not perfect, but uh, I think the biggest struggle I find now is, is, and I do, but days I don't, is forgiving myself because I look back and think it was 17 months of, you know, and said things and did things that I can never, I'm forgiven for them, but I can never take them back. And that's part of my struggle is, is if they forgive me, I got to forgive myself. And you don't feel like you've done that yet. I, I, I have, and I feel like I have, but I say that's part of the, when I say I have some of those days, sometimes Mm -hmm. that's, that's the larger part of it. It's not really the, uh, it's not really the, uh, the, PTSD or the uh, anxiety or depression. It's that waking up going, man, that was three or four years that I could have, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I, everything's great. I, you know, I got a 
29 year old son with a, you know, great job, married to a nurse and getting ready to make me a pawpaw for the first time. And, uh, <laughs> and I got a younger son, 23, just graduated from college, you know, looking for a job. And, uh, so, you know, things are, and me and my wife's relationships better than it's ever been. So things are good, but it's just those sometimes I think, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm spiritual. I'm not super overzealous, but I do think sometimes at any time I'm having, you can't bring him back down. looks like things are going a little too good for him, you know? So that's just, uh, that's, that's my mom talking. That's what she always, you know, says, but, uh, so I can just say, I think that's the biggest part of it is, is the still working on, uh, is forgiving myself and moving forward from that. Chris, how do you reach out to somebody who might be listening that's in that darkness and in that silence of PTSD to have enough courage to take the first step to healing? It's got to get to point to where I am. There comes a point where you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, you know, and, and you have to get to a point where, and like I am right now, I I won't use any bad language, but I don't give a crap about what other people think about me. And it comes to that point. And a lot of that comes though, from the environment you're working in too. I mean, you got to have that feel that support. It's tough if you don't feel like you're going to be supported. And, uh, you know, especially in the fire service, it's getting better. It's really is. And, and I think that support comes from the top, from the administration, you know, and uh, I just tell them you have to take that step. If you and firefighters are the worst, we don't like the way things are currently, but we hate change. So, you know, we're we're stuck in this uh, like a hamster on a wheel. And uh, but I think it's, you know, I hear people say we're heroes for whatever you want to call it. We can't do that job. You can't be the best at your job unless you take care of yourself, period. And uh, I think that's what I, what I tell people, you know, be a be a hero to my, my son, fighter, you know, and. Uh, you know, of course, the, the photos, I think it's a cool deal and that I'm part of that. But I can tell you and they'll probably tell you they're they're more proud of the steps I took to overcome what I did and where I'm at today than ever me being a firefighter. And I think that's that's the message I try to give that. Uh, like I said, that that job and that legacy or that job's going to go away. And when it's done, all you got is your family and your friends. And so I just think it's important to. Uh, like I say, to reach out, take that step. It's And uh, so that's what I just tell everybody and just encourage them to, uh, to, to picture, picture life on the other side of what they're going through right now. And it's, it's, it's attainable. It's, it's, it's uh, like I say, it says, we use the word simple. It is as simple as reaching out. And the amazing thing about reaching out is when you do, or what I found, uh, when I finally reached out, the people that were reaching out to help me, were the very ones that I had embarrassed, humiliated, you know, and those were the people that that includes family and friends that were still, you know, waiting there to help me. This may not even be a fair question, but it's something just popped in my mind. Could all of this been preventable? And was it because of pride or ego that may have gotten in the way? No, definitely pride and ego came to a fork in the road, you know, not whereas over here was the, love of my family and everybody that was reaching out, trying to help me over here was pride and ego of the job and what mm. they were going to think about me. I chose pride and ego, uh, preventable. I don't know. I don't know if that's a, um, I would say 
this day and time, you do not have to wait until the wheels fall off. So I would say it's preventable maybe to, to that point. But, you know, everybody's going to struggle and, and everybody's going to experience trauma, mm-hmm. um, first responder or not. Um, and it's just the, it's sometimes it's not about, uh, you know, what's wrong with that person. Why can't they handle that? It's more like maybe what happened to that person. Why, why does this trigger them? Why do they struggle with this? And, uh, like I say, and that was, that was big for me. Once I, uh, once I got into my counseling and, and went into, and I'm going to use this abbreviation because I can't pronounce it. And the listeners will have to look it up if they really, <laughs> but, uh, what I experienced, I went through, uh, EMRD counseling, EMDR, excuse me, EMDR. And, um, you have to look it up. It's, I'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Do that. And uh, what it does though, is it takes you to it. It's not hit. You're not hypnotized. It's a, uh, it's a deal where they get the left and the right brain going. I'm going to really sound stupid here when people, somebody's going to listen and go, what an idiot. <laughs> but remember I was a firefighter, not a doctor. So, uh, but what it helps you do is talk about traumas without experiencing those feelings of the trauma. So it helps you deal with it and talk about it. And once I got into EMDR and all, you know, a lot of my issues from the photo and from the bombing were guilt, irrational guilt, like, you know, being the last one to hold Bailey, uh, being singled out um, because of the photo. Aaron didn't get to grieve privately at all, you know, baby's mom. And that was all stuff I put on myself, you know, that irrational guilt. And when we started talking about irrational guilt, when I was doing my MDR, it went back to, like we talked about the incident when I was, you mentioned when I was 10 years old, you know, being molested when I was 10 years old and all that irrational guilt I was putting on myself about it for years. And um, I say once I, my counselor was the first person I'd ever said that to. And she says, and I totally believe her. She said, I knew we were going to get to here. She said, I just, you know, she said, I was just waiting for you to. And I tell you when I did it, man, it released so much, uh, explained a lot of stuff growing up and in the job and, and believe it or not there, I think there's a certain, like, I don't know what the percentage, but it's a large percentage of first people that become first responders have experienced childhood trauma. And it's because we want to go into that protector mode or that protector profession. And, uh, like I said, but it's, um, and it's different for everybody. Trump was traumatic to Chris Fields isn't traumatic to Tommy or, you know, and vice versa. And, uh, so it's just, uh, it's just, and it's, it's really big on recognizing, which I knew there were changes in myself, but the pride and ego kept me from addressing them or trying to figure out why. And we all, we all know ourselves well enough, you know, that we, we, we know when something's off. And, uh, so that's just my message. You know, I just encourage people to, uh, to reach out, you know, and, and, it may not be that first responder or that first counselor you go to. Uh, it wasn't for me. We didn't hit it off at all. And the first responder world, it's really important. And I guess really in any world, whether you're talking about athletes that go through struggles or, you know, working moms or what, you have to find what I call or what the industry calls a culturally competent counselor, somebody that knows, you know, so to go deal with a, to go talk to a clinician that's dealt with first responders and PTSD, you know, it's pretty important because when we go talk to them and tell them what we're experiencing or feeling or seeing, they, they've either been there or they've been in this industry long enough 
that they when some, when they actually say, I know what you're feeling, I know what you're talking about, you can say you really do, you know, just like, you know, we, we keep talking about athletes, just like an athlete, you know, don't don't go to some, you know, local lady that or man that deals with uh, you know, childhood trauma or something, and then try to talk about your things you experience as an athlete. I mean, it's just different. You just gotta find somebody that's been in your world or they've studied your world, or they've been working with people in your world long enough that they're what we call culturally competent. Either way, people, if you know somebody or struggling, reach out and get some help. That's the main message here. And Chris, that photo changed your life so much. Have you reached out to other people who have been singled out in an iconic photo to let them know about, man, your life's about to take a complete change and you don't realize it? Yeah, but I, I let me take it back. It's been more them reaching out to me. Oh, I've okay. Had a few, I've had a few, you know, call me or I've gone to speak at a conference and they've come up and said, Hey, um, you know, this happened to me. And, you know, I just tell them, you know, it's, um, again, it's just, it's just important to, I'd say that was a big struggle for me was being singled out, you know, in, in what we call a team oriented profession, you know, uh, but I always, always like to say, man, the support I had from the men and women of the fire department was through the roof. It was, you know, I couldn't ask for any better support from from administration, you know, down when all that was going on. But uh, it's funny you say that the uh, 1980, I don't remember what the year was, but in Midland, Texas, baby Jessica that fell in the well. Oh, yeah. Yep. OK. The uh, the firefighter that rescued her or I say rush here team effort again, but he came up out of the well with her and had his picture. It was on people magazine. Um, story goes that because of that, he struggled with a lot of issues. He became addicted to um, prescription drugs and he ended up getting fired from his job. Well, when that photo, he, he said what you said just a minute ago in 1995, when that photo of me and Bailey was published, he went, he took that photo went back into his ex fire chief's office and said, this guy has no idea how his life's going to change. He drove across his family farm, left a note to his two sons and blew his brains out. Wow. Yeah. And of course I'm not hearing this till years later, but like you said, it was an example of him going, you know, this guy has no idea how his life is going to change. And, uh, he was, he was correct. It was a, uh, it was, a you know, little Oklahoma guy, you know, on the fire, you know, living my uh, dream on the job. And all of a sudden your world's turned upside down. You got cameras and microphones stuck in your face and, and uh, people calling you a hero. You know, I would say he would be a hero. His, I mean, uh, Jessica lived and she's had a, you know, well, you know, Bailey wasn't alive. I didn't do anything heroic. So it's always that term is our profession heroic. Yeah, I would, I would say, yeah, I mean, I'd be sitting here stupid and say, no, it's not because there are some things that are done that, you know, and we're willing to put our lives on the line for people we don't even know. So I would say yes, but it's, uh, it comes back to, uh, you can call it whatever you want to call it, but we can't be that hero or that whatever, if we're not taking care of ourselves, you know, I can't be the husband or the father that I'm supposed to be and Papa that I'm supposed to be, uh, you know, if I'm not taking care of myself and that's what it always, that's what it comes back to. And in the first responder world, we, we have to look out for each other. Uh, a friend of mine named Chris Scallon, retired cop from Norfolk, Virginia. He does a lot of speaking. 
And I always use a thing of his now. He opens up his when he speaks and says, How many of you guys or girls out here, if one of your friends called you or reached out and said, Hey, I'm struggling, I need some help, how many of you would help them? I mean, 100% of the hands go up. And he says, Okay, if you yourself were struggling, how many of you would reach out? And only about five or six hands go up, you know. And I probably even question those five or six hands, you know, I won't call them out. I wouldn't call them out by no means, but I want to say, mm. but, uh, and that I say in there, that, that in there lies the problem, you know, we're always willing to help out our brother or sister because our innate drive in our profession is to get to a bad situation and make it better. So if our friends in a bad situation, we want to make them better. doesn't matter what it does to us. That's just how we're programmed. I guess I would say. So I always ask that. And I get a lot of people that come up to me afterwards and go, man, you got me with the O. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if it was me struggling, would I, would I reach out? So it's, it is, it's a, I hate the word, but you got to use it. It's that stigma of, of I want to get rid of that word, but it's uh that's what it is. It's that stigma of, of reaching out. Like it shows some kind of weakness. And to me, it shows, uh, give me that strength of somebody that's willing to reach out, you know, and, and, and ask for help. Listeners go to chrisfields.org. I'm going to put a link in the show notes for that. You can go to his website, Chris coming back full circle. Now of everything you've gone through with now you're going to be a pop on everything. When you hear the words faith and family, what's it mean to you these days? It's why I'm here. Um, it, it's, I mean, that's all I can say. It's why I'm here. And it is, um, in that order, faith and family, it's, uh, and it's just, it's just a huge part. And, and when I say faith, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want people to, you know, I believe in God. Yes. And I'm spiritual and I don't want to single that out. I'm just saying to, to people, if you don't believe in something bigger than yourself, you know, then, then what are we doing? You know? And, uh, that's kind of my, uh, but my, my faith, I was raised in the church. Uh, I prayed during all this, my wife had her little war closet, our closet that she would go. And that's where she would do all her praying. And, and, uh, it really hit me one time. She told me that, uh, this was before this is when I was back on the job and had retired and hadn't even spoke for the first time ever. She said when she would pray, she'd always get these uh, visions of me speaking in front of people. And I was like, wow, you know, and of course, when she's telling me that all the time, I'm going, yeah, whatever. You're just trying to get me to, you know, I had that attitude. Mm -hmm. And then next thing you know, three or four years later, thanks to our buddy, Jay Dobbins, I'm, I'm speaking. And, uh, but uh, yeah, if it wasn't for uh, faith and family, uh, man, it's two of the strongest. It's to me, it's, it's the two, pillars that you should work to make the strongest in your, you know, in your existence is your, is your faith and your family. Any plans to put all this into a book? <laughs> Funny you should say that. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I was, uh, I was working with a lady and uh, she, she was, she's a great lady. She's been there for, and uh, I don't know. We just, we just kind of, we're not working together anymore, but we're still friends. We just parted uh, and she might hear this someday. So I'm not, I wouldn't bad mouth her anyway. I don't have anything bad to say about her, but we were just kind of in a different direction, you know, uh, of, of what I thought I wanted to put down on paper. 
and what she was putting down on paper. She was helping me as a, I guess, ghostwriter, whatever you want to call them. But uh, I thought, you know what? I think I'll just start scribbling stuff down myself and then maybe take that and let somebody that's a little smarter <laughs> and uh, that has a lot of time to spell check and uh, see what they can, uh, you know. So it wasn't a, so yes, that, that idea is there. And uh, um, it, it'll, I, I have a feeling it'll be done someday, but it's a, we were working and I just said, that's not what I have. All that was going on with that and what I got going on over here, I just didn't need need that in my life at that point. So it's it's on hold for now, but it's uh, but it's definitely uh, definitely going to be in the works. Chris, so. thank you for your service, your courage, and being transparent and being a guest on my show. Well, thank you, Tom. Man, I I, I appreciate it so much. And can I can I give one link real quick? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, three of my best friends. We've got the deal called. Uh, you mentioned it, Trauma Behind the Badge, and it's uh, www.traumabehindthebadge.us. Uh, some great guys, man, I work with them and we just, it's all about first responders for us. So I just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> I will put that in the show notes listeners. So go check out all the show notes for EMDR, Chris Fields, website and trauma behind the bag. Follow me on Instagram at before the lights podcast. And if you would, everybody take 30 seconds out of your day, wherever you follow the podcast on that platform, rate and review the show. Five stars, nice comments are always appreciated. Thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. And until next time, everybody, a salute, a chin chin.